This is The Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to The Jason Jones Show, broadcasting from the west side of Oahu. And our guest today is on the other side of the world. I just had the privilege of interviewing Ambassador Kip Tom. He is the United States Permanent Representative to the United Nations Agencies for Food and Agriculture in Rome. He's our ambassador. He was Senate confirmed. But at his heart, he's a farmer from seven generations of farmers, I believe, from the heartland of America. He's a Hoosier from Indiana. So he's a farmer from families of farmers, family of farmers surrounded by farmers. This man grew up thinking about how to feed the world. And now he's helping feed the world. We are approaching a crisis like we haven't seen since World War II with hunger and famine, a real serious threat to hundreds of millions of people. So I can't imagine right now how busy he is. We were so privileged to have him for a little over a half an hour. So here we go. My interview with Ambassador Kip Tom to the U.S. Mission to the U.N. Agencies for Food in Rome. Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Ambassador Kip Tom. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Good evening, afternoon, or morning, wherever you are. Well, it's good evening here in Hawaii, and it's good morning for you. In my, you're, you are in my favorite city, the Eternal City, Rome. In fact, I was I was married at San Andrea della Frate, uh, just a few blocks from the Spanish Steps. So I hope if you ever go in there, you can say a prayer for me and my family. Sir, I, I want to thank you. for. I know you're a very busy guy, and this has to be one of the busiest times of your life. We are, with the COVID shutdown, we are hearing reports of famine and, and, and uh, threats of famine in, from India to the Horn of Africa, across the Middle East into Africa. You are our ambassador to UN food pre- programs in Rome, the two biggest being the World Food Program and FAO. What do those of us, you know, in the States, what do we need to know about the crisis bearing down on the developing world? Well, I'll I'll start out by saying this. Uh, In this current environment of COVID-19, we are taking the approach and the stance right now and preparing ourselves because we see this as the crisis following the crisis. Um, You know, if we look at 2020, we've been saying this for a long time, we think it's going to be we'll probably be facing the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II and for a number of reasons. Uh, we got wars in Syria, Yemen, uh, deepening crises in places like South Sudan, where I was back in July, where we met with uh, uh, Rick Mashur and, and President uh, Salva Kiir, uh, trying to talk to them a little bit about the peace process. Uh, over in Burkina Faso, the Central Sahel region, and then, you know, we have desert swarms of, uh, of uh, locusts in Africa that could be a biblical proportion that is going to be the worst in nearly 70 years uh, amidst uh, all this and some changing environments that uh, create uh, the capacity to for these nations that are living in the midst of conflict, um, the ability to feed themselves. Now they're facing a, a health pandemic and it could be extremely dangerous and famine is a real possibility over the next few years here. You know, as we look at it, we know this. We know there's about 821 million people go to bed hungry each and every day. 
Then there are further about another 135 million people facing crisis at levels of hunger or worse. Then that means there's another 135 million beyond that that we believe are on the brink of starvation that we're going to be addressing here in 2020. So that's a total of 265 million people that are living from meal to meal or maybe day to day on the edge of starvation. That's why we see this as probably the worst year since World War II. Uh, the United States has been fully engaged in supporting the World Food Program. We're the most uh, philanthropic country in the world, giving almost $3.4 billion in 2020, excuse me, 2019 to the World Food Program. And I'll put it this way. The, the embassy we have here in Rome, uh, we're, we're focused on a food and agriculture organization, and we're focused on the World Food Program. Uh, you know, if we look at the size of those budgets, it's the second largest budget to NATO in international organizations for the United States government. So you can tell that the United States plays a huge role in humanitarian needs around the world, trying to help create resilience and capacities for smallholder farmers in all the countries we work. You know, the FAO, we work in about 140 countries there, and the World Food Program is working in about 90 countries today. Uh, I can tell you the complexities that we're dealing with, whether it's uh, related to COVID or not, but we're trying to get food into places now, and we're getting uh, some of our crews locked down for two weeks in, uh, in uh, quarantine. Uh, when they need to go back and get more food or more personal protective gear. So the world we work in is becoming more and more or complicated. And we really need to work hard on trying to improve and work with leaders around the world to make sure we're successful. And something that really strikes in my heart is this. Uh, you know, with COVID lockdown, schools around the world are closed. Oftentimes, we are the ones that are providing the meal, one meal a day that young children, the 1.6 billion children and young people get a day, we're not there any longer. Uh, schools are closed. We can't provide the, the lunches to them. So now we have that population that is at risk as well. So we see this as really important. We're trying to retune our strategies, make sure that we're prepared to make sure this isn't the worst year since, you know, since World War II, but it, it's a definite possibility. I guess when, when, I, when, I, when I look at the trips I've had in Africa over the past uh, 10 months here, traveling across the Sahel and Eastern Africa and down Rwanda, Zimbabwe, many other places, and, and I see the constant need for people wanting to create their own livelihoods. One to be economically empowered, women and children, men, everybody, they want to be able to not only feed themselves, but feed their communities, do a better part of feeding their country, and hopefully at some point in time get to the point where they can even export to other countries and help their food security needs as well. The, the interest is there, but there's been an underlying uh, push from Rome, uh, mainly at the Food and Agriculture Organization, in the past. I think we're making changes today. I really believe under Director Chu we're making changes, but in the past we've had a number of uh, motivations very based on ideological views of what food production systems need to look like. We've actually denied basically the whole continent almost of Africa access to the tools that have been able to help feed the current 7.3 billion people around the world today. You know, whether it's biotech, I know it's controversial, but it's proven safe. Whether it's using crop care products or modern agronomic tools or data science, you know, there's just so much opportunities that we want to make sure that the farmers in the developing world have access to that they don't today but we face an uphill battle in trying to get that done here. But we're working to make that impact, make it work.
Ambassador, it's frightening to hear you say that ideology is tripping over. You're you're a farmer. I mean, that's you're you're before you were a diplomat. You're a farmer. I've I've read your confirmation hearing uh, transcripts, and I know your past. You're not on, not only are you a farmer, you're a farmer from uh, generations of farmers, and every generation we saw advance in technology, and that's how how we feed the world. When you look at the 20th century, the number one killer it was famine. The number two killer was statism direct violence by governments. And when you really look at most of those famines in the 20th century, in China, in the Ukraine, for example, in Cambodia, in Ethiopia, they were caused by ideology. They were caused by the ideology. So we're still seeing ideology as a stumbling block to progress in technology and feeding the world? There is no doubt that's the issue. And uh, I, I think part, part of it's helping educate and uh, make knowledge available to those that have the ideological views. Uh, we're working hard at that, Rome, trying to get that point across at the same time, uh, making sure our outreach is at the time we spend in the continent of Africa, dealing with ambassadors across the continent and, and others. We, we, you know, we oftentimes just focus on Africa, but we have other places as well that are just uh, food insecure. But the ideological views, there are no doubt, is what slowed our ability down to create the capacity and resilience that we need to feed that hungry world. You know, the, the world's demand for food is going to nearly double in the next 30 years. And we need to do it using less of our natural resources. And the only way we're going to get there is to use modern innovations. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, we, we, we look at how we've embraced technology and innovations in every part of our life, whether it's the computers we use, the phones we use, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, uh, the medical practices that, that keep our health care going. But when it comes to food, people want to go back to systems that uh, my grandfather gave up on 120 years ago. And that's just not acceptable. We need to make tools available to these farmers, make sure they have access to them. I mean, I, I take the example that just, I can't believe I'm in Rome talking about this, but the fall armyworm is a, a pest that is in the United States. And we figured out how to deal with it 20 years ago by using biotech crops. We use less chemicals. Or our carbon footprint is smaller, and yet we control we control the, the fall armyworm. Yet in Africa, so many places, it's not allowed to be used. Uh, these NGOs that are, have these ideological views have been very effective uh, in getting to a lot of these national leaders and and, and blocking the access to these technologies. And we know we know it's it's costing their yields nearly forty percent of what it could be. Now in the United States, if, if I lose yield like that, it's an economic impact to me. It's economic, and we're not going to make the money, hopefully, we were planning on. But when you get in sub-Saharan Africa, the Sahel, you get in Zimbabwe, uh, any one of the other nations that's plagued with this uh, fall armyworm, it's the ability to feed yourself. Maybe put another piece of tin on your house. Maybe the ability to get a little bit of health care to improve your lives. So that's why it's so important. I mean, for people to embrace the, the system, smallholder farmers, I don't know anyone that wants to remain that. I don't know young people that want to go back and be a smallholder farmer or the women that want to be engaged in it. Why don't we allow them to have innovations and let them use mechanization, try to elevate themselves so they can advance their economies and feed their people. That's what we need to go towards. And that's what we're really working hard on here in Rome and across the developing world to uh, show the value that these innovations can, can prove for their, their self. Is this crisis an opportunity I read today? Um, it has been quite frustrating me since the, the Italy shutdown at, at our organization, the Vulnerable People Project. We started 
uh, voicing concern for food and food distribution and for vulnerable communities. And it was sort of a blackout. It seemed to me in the mainstream media, there was heightening fear to achieve a political outcome. And there was no talk about food insecurity, hunger or famine. And in just the past week, you finally see it being covered. And I just read today at, at, at uh, MSN.com, the director of the World Food Program said that uh, 130 million more people will be pushed to the brink of starvation by the end of 2020. With this sort of reality bearing down us on us, I'm hoping maybe they'll put ideology aside so we can meet the needs in, this, in the midst of this crisis. That, as you said, we have not seen since uh, World War II. It's the humanitarian thing to do is that we have to get back to making pragmatic decisions to make sure that we can find the means to feed this hungry world. Uh, yes, this could be viewed as an opportunity. I know there's some people that are pointing at our modern farming systems and saying it's, it's part of the cause of what happened today. And I, I don't know how they can build that story, but uh, the reality is uh, the systems today work. That's why we're, that's how we're able to feed the 7.3 billion or most of the 7.3 billion around the world. It's taken a lot of work to get here. You know, I look at the innovations in agriculture that started to occur back in around 1900. In the United States, nearly 50% of the people in 1900 worked and lived on a farm, and they were subsistence farmers, just basically providing enough uh, uh, income to feed themselves and maybe create a little revenue to where they could get the health care, make the improvements to their lifestyle. Then we had mechanization come along. We started to see people move off the farm. We had the industrial revolution occur next to the United States, and we started building cars and everything else that happened during that that revolution. And then following that, we had the green revolution occur, and then we had hybrid technologies come out, and then we had biotechnology occur. You know, we've seen yields from 1900 to where we're at today almost quadruple. So, you know, it was those changes. It was the movement accepting of, of new innovations that's got us where today we can use less land, provide more crops, more food for people, but yet it's still challenged by many people. And the reality is we want to protect the environment. We want to make sure that we're using no more land than we have to. We want to make sure we have biodiversity. We want to make sure that uh, the resources we use, we use no more than we have to. And uh, this is what we want to see across Africa, too, because there's a lot of places maybe they shouldn't be producing crops because it's environmentally sensitive. Let's try to find out the way to leverage these technologies, transfer that knowledge into Africa, empower youth, empower the women, make sure that they have an opportunity, too, to feed their communities. So, yes, I do view this as an opportunity during the current crisis. It's going to take a lot of time. You're not going to change this overnight. We've slipped a long way in the last probably 20 years in the guidance out of the Food and Agriculture Organization. But like I said today, I feel we're moving in the right direction. We've got uh, a new leader there, that, uh, and we have some other people supporting him that I believe will help us attain those goals. Now, now as, we move, as we see this threat of food insecurity, I, I read an article where you were quoted in The Progressive Farmer that really struck me. You said, when people can't feed themselves, they lose hope. When they lose hope, they migrate. When they migrate, they they become one of 20 million victims who get involved in human trafficking or they get involved in the arms movement. Or in worst case scenarios, they they get involved in extremism themselves. So there are consequences beyond the immediate threat of, of hunger and famine, but it breaks up communities. Well, ethnic communities get scattered, which leads to a type of famine-induced, hunger-induced ethnic cleansing. Then they become more vulnerable to 
they become more vulnerable to everything that we're concerned about. There's no doubt about that. You take a smallholder farmer, a family, I've, I've seen them, uh, maybe five, six people in their family, and they've tried producing crops, like I said, just to feed themselves. Uh, they may be living in a, a tin shack somewhere, uh, don't even have access to fresh water to drink, maybe have no access to any health care. Uh, they're just trying to survive. And if they don't have the tools to feed themselves, you know, the World Food Program is in there providing aid. And I'll be honest with you, there's some places where there's been four generations we've been feeding people. Now, to me, that's a sign of failure. We need to find ways to help elevate them, let their economic opportunities exist, give them the tools that they can go to work and help feed themselves. But like I said, there's nothing more sad than you see a, a family. That they, they've got the statistics. Typically, they'll, they'll migrate or move around their own country three times. And if they don't find a place to find food security, that basic element to sustain life, they move beyond their borders. And that's when they're subject to, as you said, the human trafficking uh, getting involved in extremism, maybe trafficking illicit drugs or arms around the world. And as I said, joining extremism. And then at that point in time, you know, global peace and security is a risk as well. So that's why food security is tied to peace and security around the world. And that's that's a good reason to be involved, to make sure that not only elevating economies, but we have peace and security. I, I can't grow a garden. I try to grow a garden. I fail every time. Here I run a human rights organization. It must be frustrating as a farmer working with folks who may have good motives, but they they also don't understand the realities of farming. It must be frustrating for you. I, I, I joke with my wife every time she watches a documentary on Netflix, my grocery bill doubles. I have seven children. You know, I say, honey, now what? you're watching another Netflix special. Special after special, sort of waging a war on the agri- on, on ag, and uh, I joke with my wife, we're only allowed to eat chickens if they had a Montessori education. Um, is this something, as a farmer who has spent his life trying to feed the world using as little land, as little water as possible, and what would you want us to know? What would you want the average person to know and understand about the ag industry? Well, I, I think if you take uh, the ag industry I came from, you know, I came from a, a farm, a family farm, very traditional. I'm seventh generation. My children who are in the eighth, the eighth generation is running the farm today. But when I was born, my parents were farming 120 acres. And that was that was pretty typical back in the, the mid-50s. And, you know, over time, we, we knew that if we want to have increased economic opportunities, the ability to maybe send our kids to college someday or maybe buy that new tractor or expand yourself, expand your operation. You, you had to invest in some innovations. You had to, you, you had to work to run it as a business. And I, you know, there, there's so many people that want to look at agriculture in the past and, and want to say, well, it, no, it should be, it's a lifestyle. Well, no, it's not. It's serious business. With 7.3 billion people around the world to feed, I can't afford failure. Neither can they. And so that's why we've taken this very business approach to understanding what we're doing, making sure we're having a positive impact on the environment, making sure we're using a limited amount of resources. But at the same time, I'm not going to be one of those that's going to uh, go against the organic movement. So if, if somebody wants to buy organic uh, chickens or lettuce or whatever it may be, that's fine. We embrace that. That's, that's a consumer choice. They should have that opportunity to buy what they want to. At the same time, we need to make sure we have an industry that's not uh, uh, pointing at the other one to elevate their their access to customers 
uh, saying the other one is bad. And that's the problem we have today. We have a very divided industry that they're pointing at each other. And some are saying, well, modern agriculture is bad. Look, they're polluting and everything else. And the reality is we're not. We've taken so many steps to make we've improved our farms and the way we utilize resources. But the organic ones will do that continually. And the thing that we look at them and say, hey, you're making a good choice. You've, you've got uh, uh, people that are in your market that want organic products, produce it for them. That's what the market wants to do it. You know, I think it's maybe 8 or 10% of the total market. So it's good. We need all forms of agriculture is what I'm saying. And it, we got to make sure that we don't demean one over the other one. And uh, I think that's what's really important because we get caught up in these policy debates and no one goes, we don't go anywhere. And that's one of the things we talk about here in Rome when we talk about agroecology. They're not willing to embrace modern innovations in it, and it's very disturbing to us. Uh, we want to make sure we have agroecology, but include all the innovations in it. And it's, it's a constant debate here that we have, and we're, we're optimistic that uh, going forward will be a part of the part of the policy and part of the conversation. Well, you think of our farmers, they have they have beat every worst case scenario, every bad prediction, and they've continued to feed the world as the population grows. We, you know, we do eat organic. My wife is really disciplined and organic, but when there were threats of shipping slowing down to Hawaii, we live on an island. My wife went to Costco and she came back with 20 canned chickens. I, I laughed. I, t- I picked up one of the canned chickens. I said, hey, honey, is this an organic canned chicken from Costco? And she goes, yeah, no, no, not right now, honey, not right now. And so we all want to have those choices. And it's a privilege to have different choices. Uh, but the most important thing is that we make sure that everyone, you know, we don't want, we, we want to live in a world. And is this a dream you have? I mean, is it possible in your lifetime that, that we will have, I, I'm only 48, but I say only 48, I'm 48. But I remember when I was a boy, they had these feed the children commercials with little Jason in Appalachia. And there'd be a little blonde kid playing in a puddle and they'd say, little Jason, lives in Appalachia, he doesn't get enough calories, and for, you know, so much money a, a, a month, you can help little Jason uh, have, have, a, have a little more nutrition. And then, you know, by the middle the 70s, we didn't see those commercials anymore. Uh, when I tell that to my children, they don't believe me that there were commercials to help feed children in, in the United States. Do you think that we're, in your lifetime we'll reach a, a point where no one is going to bed hungry and that starvation is a thing of the past? My own point of view is I don't see it as a possibility. Uh, you know, we, we have to realize what our challenges are. And like I said earlier on, uh, it used to be the World Food Program. Their main uh, target was to deal in places where they had uh, natural disasters, you know, earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, uh, tsunamis. Uh, today, nearly, nearly 70% of the work in places we provide food resources is in the midst of civil conflict. And as long as we have that man-made conflict, it's going to be very difficult to get to zero hunger. So I, I think we need to bear that in mind. But at the same time, there is no reason why we shouldn't be doing what we can to make sure those populations, even in those areas, have access to the technologies. It's like, it's like I said, you know, I think we could have prevented some of this earlier by, you know, embracing modern innovations. If we could have done it 10, 20 years ago when they were coming out and they were embraced by everywhere else in the world, except they weren't allowed to be used in a lot of these developing economies. And, you know, the, the, the director, uh, executive director Beasley made this comment at the Security Council at the UN uh, just a little over a week ago. And the models that uh, they're running right now at the World Food Program, if they see that they cannot get access and don't have the funding 
to get in the people that they need to feed across the world, they could see upwards of 300,000 people a day passing into starvation, dying for three months. That's the crisis following the crisis. That's the results. And this is why I'm so passionate, as many others here in Rome are, even though we may have different views, you know, we may have different views than someone in the EU or other places, every one of these people here want to make an impact on the world, want to make sure that we can feed those populations. So even though we have difference of opinions, we still lock arms and try to find a way to find that common ground to make sure that we can go into these developing countries and give each and every family the opportunity to grow enough food to feed themselves and hopefully elevate them out of the cycle of poverty that's so common as a subsistence smallholder farmer. We've got to give them the tools today. We can't wait any longer. Now's the time. Ambassador, one last, one last question, because I, I know you've got a lot of work to do today. Your day's just beginning. But what can we do? What can the private and public sectors do to help? What can people in media do? What can you know, people in entertainment do? How, how can we assist you? And your work, how can well, you know? How can we be of use as we're approaching this crisis um, of 135 more million people being pushed into hunger or starvation because of the COVID shutdown? Certainly, I, I would say that the best way to do that is help educate the public. I think you know, in the United States, oftentimes uh, we're only 4.5 percent of the world. Uh, we tend to get so internally focused on ourselves, and the the reality is we need to be looking around the world and seeing what's going on, what's going to impact us. Uh, you know, I look at our, our next generation coming up and I look at their opportunities and chances for peace and security. Um, I don't see it improving anytime soon because of what I see going on in food security. So anything you can do from a media perspective to amplify the message, uh, shine a light on what's going on in, in Africa, places in Southeast Asia, uh, the Middle East, uh, so many places that the conditions are going to continue to get worse. And we need to play a role in making sure that people are informed and that they care. It's like I said, the United States, uh, it's a great country. We, we give more per capita than any other nation in the world to humanitarian causes. And I think that's something to really be proud of. I mean, we, we've seen nearly a doubling of the budget uh, in the last four years here, just at the World Food Program alone. And I think that shows how we, how we support people around the world in capacity and with compassion. And we're going to have a lot of challenges uh, in front of us. We're going to have a lot of very difficult decisions to make. But we need to have the American people behind us. And we need to have others in the developed world behind us as well. There's some nations that just haven't uh, given their fair share in making sure that we have a food-secure world. And uh, I, I challenge them to come out today because it's so important more than ever that they get involved in helping feed that hungry world. So anything you can do from a media and awareness, education, knowledge building, that's what we need to be doing to help elevate and focus in on this crisis following the crisis, making sure that we can get innovations in farmers' hands to help feed themselves. Well, Ambassador, I want to thank you. By definition, your job is to serve our nation and our nation's interest. And I'm grateful to live in a nation that understands that its interests are always served uh, by sharing the burden of the vulnerable. And uh, that is your job, and you're doing that for us. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for it. I hope I get to meet you. I'm going to be in Rome in June on my way to Iraq. I hope. I, I think it's, 
this lockdown is going to be lifted and I have some meetings in Rome and then we're off to Iraq and maybe we can meet for gelato and I can, I'm Catholic. I can show you some of the great churches. There's 365 churches in Rome. Maybe you can come to mass with me, but I just, I'm really grateful for you. Uh, I look forward to that. And uh, you're welcome. Uh, We look forward to having you here. I'd like to have you meet some other people here in Rome as well that are facing this challenge of food security. Uh, I'd like to have several around that you can meet with and uh, get a little closer hand, a little eyes on just what's going on in the world of food security. Uh, you know, it's so easy for us to go to bed at night on a full stomach, resting, knowing that we're going to have breakfast in the morning and our, our day. We, we, we take so much for granted in food security in the developed world. But across the developing world, it's much different. And we need to make sure we have the compassion and talk about them. So I look forward to continuing those discussions uh, on your trip uh, on to Iraq. And I hope you can spend a little time with us here in Rome. I look forward to it. It's been it. a pleasure. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. What a privilege to have Ambassador Kip Tom on our show, guys. This is a man. He's a farmer. He's our ambassador. And as ambassador to the world food programs, the UN food programs in Rome, his job is to advance the interests of the United States, right? That's what the State Department does. But that he understands, that we as a people understand that our interests are advanced when we have a world that is food secure. That our destiny is linked intimately to the destiny of the most vulnerable communities in the world. As he said, when people are food insecure, they lose hope. When they lose hope, they migrate. They're vulnerable to exploitation, human trafficking, human sex trafficking. Young, vulnerable people with no hope are vulnerable to being radicalized. And so the basic principle of the organization that supports this show, guys, Movie to Movement and our program, The Vulnerable People Project, is very simple. To promote the beauty of the human person and to inspire solidarity with the vulnerable. Now, those might be platitudes. They sound like platitudes. Is it gobbledygook? How we do that is by thoughtful, being thoughtful, serious, strategic, to share the burdens of the vulnerable. And that's what Ambassador Kip Tom does. It's going to be a tough year, guys. Wherever you are, church leader, business leader, entertainment, you're in Congress, you're in L.A., you're an intern, you're head of a studio, wherever you are, what you need to ask yourself is, how do I leverage who I am for food insecure people? How do I leverage where I am for the vulnerable? That's what this show is about, to inspire you to do that. And only you know how to do that. And you might go, I don't know how to do that. Figure it out, okay? Figure it out. This show has been brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world, the most vulnerable moments of their life. Join us at thegreatcampaign.org and Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Go to our website, movietomovement.com, to see our new film coming out in theaters Everywhere, when theaters open up later this year, our new film, Divided Hearts of America, starring Benjamin Watson, 
And if this has been long and rambling conclusion, I apologize, guy. Guys, it's been a long day. It's the end of a very long day. But this was a very important show. Until Monday, in the Jason Jones Show. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show. Powered by Mudhouse Media. Thank you.